Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground. The three spooked girls. Hey, spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I am here with my ghoul friend, Jessica. Hey. Hello. And just like last week, we are doing another re-release from 2019. But in real time, if you are listening on Monday right now, we are actually physically together. So that's super exciting. It's true. We would have just wrapped up Disney. It's a whole thing. So fucking excited. I'm so excited. But like that I was like, wait, past tense. I was so excited. Now I'm just happy. (laughs) I know, but we're recording it early. So like you can you can say you are excited. I think that works. I am. I know. I'm so excited. I think it's good judge. But yes, we loved this episode so, so much. And it seemed like those of you who were here back then also really enjoyed it. So we thought it'd be a good fit for, you know, spooky season. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, with that, if you would like to hang out with us on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle for that is at Three Spooked Girls. We also have an amazing Facebook group, and that is Three Spooked Girls Official. We do all kinds of fun stuff in there. And apparently, I need to mention, and you also need, we need to mention our TikTok handles more because I've <laughs> had some people stumble across me and be like, what? And be like, where's Jasmine? <laughs> so if, if you would like our TikTok handles as well, they are in the link tree in the show notes, but mine is spooky underscore sleuth and Jessica is spooky aunt Jesse. Mm-hmm. If you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com backslash three spooked girls. For as little as a dollar, you get one bonus episode a month. Five and up starts our video content, which you have my Haunted Grounds series, which is on cursed and possessed objects. Jessica has Slaughter, which we've turned into a video segment as well. It's a lot of fun. The Mm -hmm. last one we did was on Death Becomes Her. But before we jump into this episode from Three Spooked Girls Past, we are going to take a quick promo break and we'll be back. Greetings, my excellent friends. Quarantine has been difficult for most of us. Movie theaters closed, restaurants were restricted, and shopping was tedious. Watching movies became a reprieve. I'm Matt. And I'm Tara. Join us as we explore the expansive world of film, from grisly horror to cliche action and everything in between. Concession Corner is a movie and cinema-based podcast where, as a married couple, we view movies together and share our thoughts on it afterwards. I'll uncover fan theories and rumors, which often accompany many films across any genre. Listen to us on the go, in the office, or just relaxing in bed. 
You can find Concession Corner on Instagram and Twitter. We'll be posting new episodes bi-weekly with upcoming movies at the end of each episode. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. We are going to go ahead and dive in. Now, for this, since vampires are is such a broad topic, we're kind of approaching it a little bit differently than we normally would. So like with zombies, how we did origin story and then media, we're not doing it like that this time. We wanted to change it up. So we essentially selected people or stories that was interesting to us that fell under vampires. So I have two stories to tell you, and then Jessica has a serial killer to talk about. Mm -hmm. So mythology, history, true crime, you're getting it all. You're getting it all this episode. It's an awesome episode of just insane funness. Yes, yes. But if you guys would like another vampire episode of it more... On that kind of stuff, Jessica's raising her hand. She's like, bitch, I already fucking do. (laughs) So this will happen eventually already, apparently. (laughs) Because I will binge watch hours and hours of vampire stuff. And I'm not just saying like Twilight vampire stuff, like Interview with the Vampire. Like real vampires, yes. I mean, I have watched every season of Vampire Diaries, the originals. Yes. And that new one with their daughter, Legacies. Oh, okay. But yes, if you guys would like to listen to that too, <laughs> let us know. Guarantee we'll do it because it's one of Jessica's favorite things. So, And I like vampires too. Have you ever had an acne breakout come at the worst time? I know I have. I mean, literally about a week before I got married, I got a pimple on my cheek. Everyone's like, oh, it's fine. It's a week out. But I get like acne scar. Oh, yeah. So in some of my wedding photos, like you can kind of like towards the end of the night peep the the scar. So oh, no. that was so, so stressful. No, sad, sad. But yes, been there too. I feel like it's like every time, every time it's like, oh, you have something important coming up. No, let me give you this big pimple on your face. Like, right. I just can't. I can't. And honestly, I know we're not alone. Pretty sure like everybody's kind of had the struggles with our skin and all of that. But that's why Jessica and I are super excited that we've partnered with Apostrophe, who is the sponsor of today's episode. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne. They will connect you with a board-certified dermatologist that will create a personalized treatment plan that is perfectly tailored to your unique skin. It's nice to know that you have a real dermatologist and that your plan was tailored for your specific needs. I honestly cannot say enough positive things. My plan that I've gotten from them has been working out so great. My skin has improved so much. I have been struggling with acne literally since it was time for that to start happening. So like over a decade, (laughs) you know, and I just really love that you don't have to wait at the pharmacy because they deliver it right to your door and it came in such a cute little package. I loved everything about it. Oh, totally. We have a special deal for our audience. Save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash spookedgirls when you use our code spookedgirls. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, go to apostrophe.com slash spookedgirls and click begin visit. Then use our code spookedgirls at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash spooked girls and use the code spooked girls to get your dermatologist crafted plan for $5. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast. 
So with that said, I am going to kick us off with my two stories and then I will hand it over to her to wrap us up with the true crime funness she selected. Yes. Because I didn't want to give it away. I had to think of something to say. Don't go chasing <laughs> vampires. That's just going to be the soundbite t- thing. <laughs> I'm going to do it again before I start. You just keep doing it. Just do it the whole episode. It's fine. Just drop it every so often. Yeah. All right. So as we have discussed at length at this point, vampires are probably one of the most iconic creatures in horror. Jessica's none. Just a little bit. There's so many versions of them and the stories that they entail. They can range from Dracula to True Blood or Fright Night <gasps> to Twilight. I totally forgot about True Blood. I love True Blood. <laughs> so... I'm a huge True Blood fan myself. I have a few of the seasons. I have like three season four, I believe. I need to get the rest. I really, really love True Blood. That's one of my faves. One of my faves. Fuck it. (laughs) But like I said just a minute ago, when we decided to choose this as a topic for an episode, we wanted to go a little bit different about it. So I wanted to dig a bit deeper into things and go back further from what I knew from that. So I found two stories that kind of go way back in history that I wasn't necessarily familiar with that I thought you guys would enjoy as well. And they also kind of have that conspiracy feel to them, whether it's like, ooh, are we vampires? Are we something else? Are people just fucking nuts? So lots of fun. (laughs) Okay, so the first one I'm going to talk about is Arnold Paul, and he is described to be one of the first believed cases of vampirism. I'm going to go with that. Okay. So Arnold had returned from his military service and decided to go settle in his hometown village. And this was set in the spring of 1727. Damn, we going old school. We are going way back. He purchased a home and he got married. It was said that he confided in his wife about being afraid of meeting death at an early age. Okay. Kind of weird, but can't really blame you for the time period. People didn't live past like 30 something. During his time in service, he had been in Greece, where it is said the belief in vampires was already on the rise. While he was away, he said that he had encountered a vampire and had been infected by one, but attempted to cure himself after they had defeated said vampire or vampires. This story has a couple versions, so it's kind of like some of the stuff is conflicting. So, you know, that's how that shit goes. Got it. Either way, he was he was infected as a vampire. But the way that they cure themselves in his story is that it's super gross. He ate the dirt from the grave of said vampire and smeared their blood on himself. You're just a nasty person who wants to say something else. That's all this (laughs) is. You just want to, you've got like pica or whatever that is. (laughs) Uh, With that said, uh, this event had such an impact on him. This is actually why he decided to leave the military and go home and just try to go have a normal life. Normal, quote, quote. Sadly, like most of these stories, you know, do, things start to take a bad turn. Of course. So while he was working on the farm one day, he actually ended up falling and he was severely injured. Once again, they do kind of vary. One said that he had actually broken his neck, but... It was just kind of unclear as well. Some were just like he sustained injuries. Well, no shit. He fell off a fucking barn. <laughs> so, I don't know. I, I always just think it's funny when, I mean, I grew up on a farm. So one time someone is like, I fell off the barn. I'm like, why? <laughs> what are you doing? 
But either way, he also probably sustained internal injuries as well with his fall because after that, he ended up dying a few days later. And then after this, his loved ones would, of course, hold his services to lay him to rest. Now, things wouldn't begin to happen until about 30 to 40 days after Arnold had died. After this, there was four individuals who claimed to have been plagued by Arnold and mysteriously died shortly after this. So there was also reports that people had seen him throughout the village as well. It's like, okay, you're dead. Why the fuck you walking around, bro? So, of course, this set off panic. So a team of two military officers and two military surgeons decide to do an investigation. They exhumed Arnold's body and came across a perplexing sight. Arnold's body did not show any signs of decomposition at all. In fact, it appeared his original nails and skin had fallen off, maybe shed. I don't know. The way to describe it's kind of weird. Off his body. And now don't get like too crazy with, you know, imagining the story and think he was just like a skinless, nailless, creepy corpse thing because he wasn't. Apparently, he had brand new fingernails and brand new skin. So that's why I got like the snake vibe in my head. You know what I'm saying? Like when they shed their skin. It's weird. Are we sure he just didn't like exfoliate? In the grave? His skin was like underneath him? It was just like fell off, I guess, and just chilling in the casket with him. Uh, Okay. I was like, how did I know? Okay, I get it now. Because they exhumed him. (laughs) I was confused on how they knew his skin had come off, but I I guess I wasn't like putting it in my head that it was there. (laughs) Like a snake. (laughs) Yes, because it was there. And if that's not weird enough, he also had fresh blood flowing from his eyes, nose, mouth, and ears. And it was also noted his beard had grown again. (laughs) Okay. Glow up. So there's that. He's got a transformation going on, you know. And there's also that thought that when you turn into a vampire, you end up being like more attractive version of yourself kind of thing. Or something changes about you to appear more attractive. So there's that. That kind of ties into that. Did he sparkle like a thousand diamonds in the sunlight? Ew, gross. No, that's not. I don't. I hate Twilight. Let's not. (laughs) (laughs) So seeing this gruesome and perplexing whole thing, the team was like, okay, enough is enough. Let's fucking kill this vampire. So at this point, they decided to drive a stake through his heart. Allegedly, the corpse let out a shriek when they struck him. And then after that, continued to groan in pain and then also bleed. So not dead. I don't know. Vampire or not dead, you know. But he had been buried for 30 to 40 days. So uh, let's just go with vampire because it's more fun that way. How do they bury? I don't know. In the ground? Could have been a cave. No, he was like in the ground. Ooh. Yeah. So after they staked him, they also cut his head off and then burnt the whole corpse. They had also done the same procedure with the four victims as well, so they wouldn't come back as vampires either. Got it. Now, as dramatic as that is, our story does not end there. Oh, God. (laughs) There's more. Another what you would call, I guess, an outbreak, because that's kind of how they phrase it on all, all the sources I read on this. So I just went with that. It'd be sometime before the next one, though, almost five years. So now we're into the winter of 1732. This time, the number of victims would be a lot higher. In total, about 10 to 11 people would die. Now, you're probably wondering, because I sure as shit was when I first found this out, how the hell is this Arnold's fault if they disposed of his corpse and all of the victims from the first outbreak? Mm -hmm. I will get to that. Let's talk about these victims real quick. When these victims began to die after their families went to the authorities, and essentially they had been ruled dying of malnutrition, something that was obviously super common during this time period. And there was also like a huge like war going on and all this other stuff. So, you know, bad, bad situation. 
the people of the town were like, fuck no, there's fucking vampire, dude. Come on. So they were like, if we don't kill this vampire, more people are going to die. We need to take this seriously. So they took it so seriously that they had threatened to leave the town. Oh, God. Everyone was just going to up and fucking leave. Bye, bitches. (laughs) Yeah. So, of course, the authorities did not want the town to basically self-destruct from something they thought was pretty much bullshit. So they were like, all right, let's exhume these bodies. So the team this time consisted of three renowned army surgeons, a lieutenant colonel and a sub-lieutenant. More bigwigs, apparently. To their surprise, they found the same exact things that they found when they exhumed Arnold's body. The bodies weren't decomposing at all. They had this fresh skin and nails, fresh blood in their veins, all of that. The vampire glow up, as Jessica called it. How the fuck did this happen? Five years later, how the fuck did this happen? I don't know, but I will tell you what they concluded. The theory goes that when Arnold was out on his vampire shenanigans, that he infected some cattle as well. And those cows were, of course, eaten by the townspeople. Now, I don't know if you have any knowledge on this or if anyone listening has any knowledge on this. And I mean, no one's going to have any knowledge on like vampire cows. But in theory, I'm like, okay. No, you said vampire cow and cows and in my head. Uh, in my head, it went, moo, ha, 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 ha. Um, if someone wants to draw a vampire cow for us, that would be amazing. Moo, ha, ha, ha. I'll even send you a sticker. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my question with that theory was, one, that seems like a long time for them to have been eaten. Or if these cows, like, wouldn't they have noticed any strange activity of some sort, do you think? Or... You can't store meat for five years, right? Like, that's not a thing. I don't think so. Especially in the 1700s. Like, someone help me. I don't I don't understand. That's one of the biggest mysteries with the story is they went with the cow thing, but they're like, we don't have an answer. Jessica, <laughs> you can't draw a cow right now. I can too. It's our stickers. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm just. Being, I was like, I drew a cow vampire. It's not good at all. I'm gonna send a picture. She's gonna take a picture of it. We're gonna post it. I'm gonna fix it so it doesn't look this pathetic. Okay, but I'm not quite sure how they came up with that. You know, the cow vampire theory. I mean, these same time frame as if a woman floats, she's a witch. So this is a hundred years later. This is in the 1700s. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it's the early-ish 1700s, so yeah, to be fair. I mean, we're still, like, you're still on the same, gen. like, there's a generation flow of people who are like, you know, if she floats, she's a witch. Like, it's the same logic. This is very true. This is very true. But, uh, yeah, so that's, um, that's the conclusion that went with the story of Arnold Paul that I found quite interesting, and I hadn't really heard about him, so I was like, hmm, vampire cows? History? I would like to know where Arnold Paul is buried because I have a feeling it's the dirt he's buried in. And um, I just want to smother myself in it now so that I just glow up all the time. <laughs> My next story takes place here in the U.S. You may not have to travel as far. Yay! So this next story is going to bring us back across the pond to the United States, as I just said. More specifically to Exeter, Rhode Island. So this is the hometown of the Brown family. So this is during the time of tuberculosis or consumption, and it was running fucking rampant. It took victims left and right, if you aren't really familiar with this. People didn't really know much about it or what caused it. So 
Sadly, this would happen to the Brown family as well. The family consisted of George, his wife Mary, their daughters Mary Olive and Mercy, and their son Edwin. Sadly, George's wife and their two daughters would die from this illness, and shortly after Mercy died, his last family member and his only son, Edwin, would begin to fall ill as well. Mm. Now, something to be said about things is that, like I said, this illness wasn't really understood by the people at the time, and the townspeople actually believed it wasn't a disease running rampant on George's family at all. They believed it was actually something else causing to continue tragedy in his life. They believed that this was the work a vampire. Now, keep this in mind. This is about 200 years after the Salem Witch Trials, but the beliefs were still strong with everybody. Apparently, they just moved on from witches to vampires. Basically, the townspeople believed that a vampire was at work and was trying to take his son away. There had been rumors that Edwin had dreams that someone was trying to suck the life out of him, essentially. So that just adds fuel to the fire with this whole fucking thing. With the desire to save Edwin's life so George had someone left of his family, they worked hard to convince him that he needed to do an investigation. So this was like everybody. It was the townspeople, it was neighbors, it was family, it was friends. Everyone was trying to get him to be like, get their bodies up. Let's see who's the fucking vampire in your family. We need to figure this shit out. Such a random thing, but okay. Right. I know. I know. I know. So something to note. Mercy had died the most recently, about eight or so weeks prior to when all this was happening. She had been kept in a separate crypt type situation for a while because the ground was too frozen to bury her. Once it thawed, that's when they did go ahead and bury her. Just keep that little tidbit. Anyway, everything checked out normal with Mary and Mary Olive. It was Mercy that had the peculiar findings. So Mercy, similar to Mr. Arnold we talked about earlier, she didn't have any decomposition at all. And she actually had what appeared to be fresh blood in her heart. Now, people argue that being in the crypt, she was essentially frozen. The ones that want to argue she wasn't a vampire. Mm -hmm. So maybe that was why. And there was a doctor during this time who was like the primary care provider for the family prior to the deaths. His name was Dr. Harold Metcalf. And he tried to basically stop the mass hysteria with this vampire thing and be like, no, there's an explanation for this. He may have been one of the people trying to explain that theory, too. I'm not quite sure. But essentially, the townspeople and everybody were like, well, since you didn't save the family with your medical knowledge, you're wrong. And we're not going to listen to you. I love how stupid people are. Right? So, of course, the townspeople had their own way to save Edwin. So since they believed Mercy was, in fact, a vampire, here's what they decided to do. They removed her lungs and heart from her body. They cremated them. And they took them over to the Brown home. When they were there, they mixed the ashes of her organs with some water. Once they made this elixir, as they called it, they gave it to Edwin to drink. Yeah, gross. And they believed that this would save him from the curse of the vampire, a.k.a. from mercy. Sadly, of course, as we all know, this did not help him at all. And he ended up dying two months later. I would think it would speed the process up. Yeah. Then after this, Mercy's body was reburied with her tombstone. And after that, George lived another, I want to say, about 30 years. So it is really sad. It's a sad story, you know. I mean, did he kill them all? Ooh, he could have. No, they had tuberculosis. Maybe. <laughs> then I made a face and you're like, and I'm like, it's just like really suspicious that they all died <laughs> him and he lived like 30 more years. <laughs> and I get like tuberculosis was like 
a killer, like killed thousands of people. But I mean, we talked about it on Waverly. Yeah. It's definitely like one of those things that could kill a lot of people, but it just seems like very odd Mm -hmm. that it was every one of them but him. Yeah. And that the town folk had to like plead with him to save their children, his children. I mean, you never know. You never know. Could go either way. But fun fact, you can still go to Exeter today and visit all of their grave sites because if you do believe she is a vampire and she was sucking the life out of all her family, you can visit Rhode Island's vampire. But that does leave the question of was Arnold or Mercy vampires or was it more that they were in the type of situation that some of the victims of the Salem witch trials were in. We'll let you guys decide. I mean... I know Jessica's got thoughts, but um, we'll let you guys decide. We'll let you guys decide. I thought they were interesting. And they are. I feel like it's definitely more of maybe not, but it's interesting to have stories like this because if you've researched vampires at all, they've definitely evolved as times went on and as pop culture and TV and movies and stuff like that has came about and evolved on its own. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because, you know, you have stuff like this where vampires were essentially just they wanted to take life or where they are running around and living with other people like in True Blood or Vampire Diaries. But it's always that common theme of they want to drink blood. That's just like the one common theme, basically. But, uh, with blood drinking and all of that good fun stuff, I'm going to hand it to Jessica now. <laughs> Yay! Don't go chasing vampires. Unless you're the Sack PD, then you should definitely chase vampires. So, for some reason, Sacramento has become, like, the longer I live here and the more research we do for this show, the more I'm like, holy fuck, a lot of serial killers lived here. Yep. Just saying. We have Dorothea Fuente. We have the East Area Rapist slash Golden State Killer. And we have Richard Trenton Chase. Get it? Don't go chasing vampires. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to talk about Richard Chase. This Boo Radley looking motherfucker is just... So let's start at the beginning. So Richard Trenton Chase was born May 23rd, 1950. It said that he had a normal childhood, you know, that 50s, like, family thing. But, you know, and it's also during that time where it's spare the rod, spoil the child type thing. And he was, I've heard conflicting stories is that he's either from Santa Clara or he's from Sacramento and moved to Santa Clara for a short period of time. Gotcha. But he primarily is from the Sac area. He will be known as the Vampire of Sacramento the Vampire Killer, or the Dracula Killer. All the names. Good lord. Yeah. Strap in for this one, people. It's a doozy. So essentially, just to kind of sum up what he did, is he would kill and then drink the blood of his victims and cannibalize their remains. It's said by the age of 10, he had exhibited evidence of all three parts of the McDonald triad, the McDonald triad, not the McDonald triad, which is different. <laughs> what is that? Like a Big Mac nuggets and a soft serve cone? <laughs> Jesus Christ, I have no clue. <laughs> Sorry. So it said that he exhibited all three parts of the McDonald triad, which is bedwetting, arson, and cruelty to animals. And it is said that if a person exhibits two or more characteristics of the McDonald triad, that they are 
most likely to present a predicted or associated with violent crimes of serial nature. Oh, shit. And he was a kid when he was displaying this shit? Yeah, you. It's basically like it's looked at in their history as their ch- as children. Mm-hmm. Is that it's bedwetting, arson, and cruelty to animals, and he hit all three. Oh no! The McDonald Triad was first proposed by psychiatrist J. M. McDonald, and then later it was developed and honed in by John Douglas, Robert Ressler, and Doctor Anne Burgess. And if you have been watching Mine Hunters, it's those three. Mm. Right. I just think that the one guy has his name changed in the show. Yeah, I think so, too. But his name is still John, isn't it? It's like Ford instead of Douglas or something. I don't know. Something. I just and that's like, oh, that's going to drive me nuts because I just saw a picture today of like the real Mindhunter people. Mm, Me too. Yeah. Crazy. With Ed Kemper. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Mm, It's a great picture. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, okay, I like it. So. Robert Ressler is going to be a huge part of this case later on because he actually gets to interview this dude. Now, to say that Richard was a little off is not hard. So it's said that in high school, he was very clean cut. He was studious. And then immediately exiting high school, he got into drugs, Mm -hmm. like heavy into drugs, like LSD drugs. Yeesh. Because we're talking 70s. Okay, that was my next question. Gotcha. Because mm-hmm. you think about it, by the time he's 20, it's 1970. Because it's he was born in 50. So he's into drugs. He's, you know, doing his thing, apparently. And it's also said that he developed a massive case of hypochondriac. Weird. So he became a super hypochondriac. This would increase as he matured. He often complained that his heart would just stop beating. Which is a weird thing just to be like, oh, my heart has stopped and you'd be totally fine. And he was very paranoid because, in fact, one time he went to the ER claiming that someone had stolen his pulmonary artery. What the fuck? Right. Because you kind of need that to live, sir. Yeah. He also, (laughs) just to let you know what a kind of an individual he was, he would also hold oranges on his head because he was believing the vitamin C would just absorb into his body. If only. Mm -hmm. And it would like, Basically, through his brain. Oh, okay. He also reported that his cranial bones had dislodged from his body and were trying to go out of his head. So he would shave his head to watch the activity. Oh, all right. Crazy. Richard's parents had split up and he was living with his dad, who in his early 20s was like, look, I'm pretty sure this dad was like, you're a weird person. I can't live with you. So he kicked him out and made him get his own place. But his mother paid his bills. So Richard really didn't have a lot of urgency to like, I don't know, assimilate into society. Yeah, to be an adult, be independent. Mm -hmm. Right. No, he didn't have anything at all. So he wasn't a very stable person, to say the least. So when Chase was left home, he decided to move in with some roommates. And you would think that this nice guy in high school because that's how they knew him is he was this nice clean cut like we'll post pictures like you see him in his high school photo and you're like oh my god he's a nice looking young man he's very like he looks like someone you'd want your kid like your daughter to date type thing or your Mm -hmm. you know son depending on their orientation yeah but yeah he's just very like oh wow he looks really nice to when you see him later you're like okay Skeletor oh boy it goes downhill (laughs) 
So he moved in and basically the roommates were like, okay, this dude's weird. He's either constantly high or he's drunk or he's high on marijuana or LSD or both. And he also liked to just walk around the apartment in his birthday suit. Oh. All natural. All right. In the nude. Okay. And he would do that even in front of company. So like, you know, could you imagine being like a dude in your early 20s and you got a roommate and you like bring a girl home to, you know, I don't know that you in the 70s listen to the radio, watch some TV. I don't know. I don't know what they had. <laughs> a record? There you go. Let's do a record. And um, your roommate walks out like, you know, his twig and berries for the world to see. It's also said that when he was in his teens, he had erectile dysfunction. Ah. That he was attracted to women, very attracted to women, but he could not keep an erection. So his high school girlfriend basically told everyone this later in life. Hmm. At this point in time, Rick started thinking about things. And he thought to himself, well, how does a penis work? How do I get an erection? Oh, the blood flows to the penis. My blood must be bad. You know what I need to do? I need to put more blood into my body because my blood is turning to powder. What the fuck? (laughs) Right. (laughs) You're like, okay, yeah. So at this point in time, all his roommates are like, get out. And he is like, no. And they're like, fine, we're leaving. And he's like, cool, because now I can bring animals home and torture and kill them in our house. I don't know about torture, but he would capture, kill, and disembowel various animals. And then he would devour them raw and mixing the organs with Coca-Cola, because that's what you use, in a blender and drink the concoction because this was going to cure his blood ailments. He literally believed that in doing this, he would help prevent his blood from turning to powder and his heart from shrinking or stopping. Oh, okay. There was also a period of time in 1973 where he was institutionalized. At this point in time, the doctors were like, there's something wrong with you, but we don't 100% know. But we think you're slightly like psychotic. But just let him go because that was the 70s. He was involuntarily institutionalized because he had gotten blood poisoning from injecting rabbit's blood into his veins. Ew. The staff nicknamed him Dracula because he was obsessed with blood and that's all he would talk about. (laughs) While he was there, he broke the necks of two birds and left them on his windowsill so he could drink their blood. Jesus. He also would extract blood from the therapy dogs with needles that he would steal. Oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. At this point in time, he is diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. He underwent treatment, but later in 1976, he was released to his mother's custody. So he's released to his mother's custody and she has like power of attorney, like she's his legal ward. So then basically what she was, is she's like, okay, he's on all this heavy medication. His mom was like, I'm going to wean him off all this medication and then I'm going to put him back in in another apartment by himself to be unchecked. That's not that's not good. No. In mid-1977, Chase was stopped and arrested at Pyramid Lake in Nevada. So here's the thing. The cops roll up to this truck that's just sitting there on the or this vehicle that's sitting there on this bank. And they found a bucket of blood with a liver in it. (gasps) And so they're like, what the fuck? And they look up and in the distance, there is a naked man covered in blood. Oh, (sighs) and it's Chase. And they chase him down. He tries to tell them, look, guys, this blood is just mine. It's seeping out of my body. 
And they're like, uh, that's, sir, that's not how blood works. <laughs> it doesn't just seep out of your body. And basically, they determined that it was a cow's blood and that it was a cow's liver. And so he was just kind of, no, he was just a freak. And they had to let him go. Like, that's literally how they looked at it. This, he's just a freak who likes to douse himself in cow's blood and he should be left to his own. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, first and foremost, that should have been a huge sign. Been like, he's willing to put himself in blood. Ugh. Yeah. If anyone should have gone on a watch list, it was him. But that was in Reno, and now he's back in Sacramento. So on December 29th, Chase started driving around, and he was very upset. So he drove by the house of Ambrose Griffin, and he fired some shots off. It was said at first they thought that Ambrose had a heart attack. But that's not the case. He got shot with a 22 caliber. How do you confuse those? It's a 22 caliber. It's little. Oh. I think it was like hidden. He had just come home from grocery shopping with his wife and she was inside putting the groceries away and he had just taken some in and it was coming back out to the car to get more. And it said that they heard two gun pops or two popping sounds. And then when she came out, she found her husband down. Also that same day, a 12 year old boy say that a man in a brown Trans Am shot at him. And then a woman a couple blocks away was shot in her home, not killed, but shot. So basically, Chase was just driving around shooting randomly. Oh. This is important to note because this is a very inconsistent way that people kill people. Mm-hmm. You have gang violence and stuff like that, which is not, it's like there's a direction to it. The way that Chase was doing this was really impersonal. He couldn't even like really determine whether he'd killed anyone. It was just weird. So they thought, okay, this is just a random shooting, and they moved on. Two weeks later, Chase attempted to enter the home of a woman, but the door was locked, so he just walked away. When questioned by Robert Rustler later, he asked him, like, like, how did you determine what houses you went into? This creepy-ass man said, if the door was locked, this means you're not welcome. Oh, Man, this is such a common thing with this time period. Mm-hmm. People just entered where they could. Yeah. On January 23rd, 1978, Chase broke into the house of Teresa Wallen. She was three months pregnant at the time. Oh, no. Mm, yeah. If you are squeamish, you might want to skip ahead a little bit. He then had sexual intercourse with her corpse, and he had stabbed her and cut open her torso. It was said that he was playing around with her internal organs. Ugh. He had removed multiple organs and he drank her blood. In fact, they found like a yogurt cup that had he had used to drink it. There was also like what seemed to be a bucket. And here's the weirdest thing he did. He shoved dog shit down her throat. Ew. And it said that like a week or so or a few days before this killing, he had adopted or bought two dogs from someone. And didn't care the ge- didn't care the gender, didn't care the temperament. He just bought two dogs. Mm-hmm. And they later found both of the puppies' bodies, oh. like, in the area. So they think that maybe he brought the dogs to the crime scene. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. So then he left. On January 27th, Chase entered the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Myroth. And it was in, I think, either early in the morning or, yeah, it was, like, mid-morning type thing. She had a friend over by the name of Danny Meredith. He was age 51. And she also had her six-year-old son, Jason. 
And she was babysitting her 22-month-old nephew. Oh, no. Yeah. Essentially, Jason was supposed to go to a friend's house and never showed up. So the little girl went over to the house and knocked on the door. She said she saw movement in the house, but no one came to the door to answer it. So she went home and told her family and the neighbors all got suspicious and they called the cops. Eventually, I believe a neighbor entered the house and then they found their bodies. Evelyn had been killed and... There had been some necrophilia involved with her and cannibalism with her corpse. David had been shot as well as Jason. But the sad thing is that 22-month-old David Ferreira was missing. So they didn't know where the baby was. The police immediately went into action to try to figure this out because at this point they have a body count of five. Jeez. So after the little girl knocked on the door... Uh, Chase fled in Meredith's car, taking David's body with him. I think that if that little girl hadn't knocked on the door, we don't know what else may have happened. But I think he took the baby's body in panic mode. Mm -hmm. They found Danny's car just a few blocks away. And essentially, the police decided to look for this, to look for someone. So they put out a bulletin. They had kind of a description. And there were several things that linked the cases together. Like, every shooting had a twenty-two caliber bullet. There were um, bloody shoe prints. The M.O. seemed to be really similar in every single one of these. So people were like, okay, we think we have a serial killer here. A few days later, or not even a few days later, Nancy Holden, who went to high school with Chase, was at the Town & Country shopping center at like the grocery store there, which is creepy because I know right where that is. Um, I'm like, oh, God, I know it's right here. Ooh. Um, she was at the grocery store and she said that there was a weird guy like staring at her. And then he walked up to her and asked her, were you on the motorcycle when Kurt was killed? And she was like, what? Because she'd in high school, she dated a boy named Kurt who had died on a, in a motorcycle accident. Mm-hmm. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation, and let's be honest, most don't taste very good, they don't fill you up, and they certainly don't satisfy your cravings. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like our favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. They're perfect for a quick breakfast, a snack between Zoom calls, or a guilt-free dessert. They taste incredible, and you can't beat the low-sugar nutrition they provide. And by shopping online, you can avoid another trip to the grocery store by getting Monk Pack delivered right to your door. Yes, my family's been obsessed with these. Mine and Matt's favorite is the blueberry almond vanilla, and the kiddo has been loving the peanut butter one. So it's really nice that we have these snacks that, you know, not only taste good, but I don't feel guilty giving them to my child right? (laughs) because they're not packed full of sugar, but she loves them. So yes, those are the two that my house is here for. I really love the blueberry one as well. I love that it tastes like legit real. You know, you get a granola bar and you bite into it and it tastes super artificial, but this one tastes like the ingredients that are in there and I love it. So good. So good. Now y'all try it for yourself and you'll see. We have a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code SPOOKEDGIRLS at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K dot com and select 
any product, then enter the code SPOOKEDGIRLS at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. We thank them for sponsoring the podcast. So she was like creeped out and was like, who the fuck are you? She was like, who are you? And he said, oh, I'm Rick Chase. And she was like shocked because, again, he was so clean cut and studious in high school. And here he looks like a crazy person. She knew he'd gotten into drugs because Sacramento might seem like a big town, but everyone gossips. So (laughs) I think people had known that he was doing drugs and out and about and that kind of stuff. So he kind of like followed her around the store and I think was trying to hint that he needed a ride. But she was like, so she checks out quickly and runs to her car rolls up the windows, locks the door, and just drives off. Good, good. And Chase is like, what the fuck? (laughs) You're a fucking nutcase. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You're like, no. (laughs) And this was really close to where Chase lived on Watt Avenue. So there were several things that the cops were looking at is that all of the killings were kind of centrally located. They were like, okay, this guy may not have a car because he abandoned Danny's car, right? Mm -hmm. So they get this tip from this girl because she calls in. Nancy Holden calls in and is like, okay, because they are describing the fact that someone had seen a guy in a bright or in like an orange puffy jacket, ski jacket. And she's like, oh, he was wearing that. So she basically calls the police and is like, hey, it's this guy, Richard Chase. They contact his mother to get help to see if they can like locate him. And she's not willing to help. So eventually they eventually track him down to this apartment, apartment 15. Here's the creepy thing. The car Danny's car that he abandoned was a hundred yards from his door. <gasps> oh, right. So they know where it is. And so these detectives go and they know, go and knock on the door and he's not responding. He's not answering. They try to get the mother to help. She's again, not wanting to help. So then they knock on the door one more time. They're like, okay, we just want to let you know we're leaving. And they go and hide. And Chase comes out carrying a box of rags and stuff and detectives tackle his ass. Because they didn't actually leave. So they catch him. At this point, he's gauntly looking. His jacket is huge. It's stained in blood. His pants are stained in blood. His shoes are covered in blood. They go into the apartment and it smells rancid. Mm, Yeah, this is also another such a fun part. Like they find, again, his concoction of organs and blood and Coca-Cola in the fridge. His blender is bloodstained and smells of rot, they say. They just like there was blood all over the couch, all over the counters, all over everything. And, you know, at first he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's all animal blood. Oh, my God. They take him in and they start questioning him. And I watched this, the documentary on him. And the detective is talking about it. And they say that, like, he's questioning him. And he turns around to go get photos. And when he turns around, Chase's head is like right next to his shoulder. And his eyes are all teary and he's just staring at it. And the detective does what any other human would do when some psychopath is sitting right there. He's screamed like, what the hell are you doing? You know, Mm -hmm. and Chase immediately like because before he was saying like it's animal blood, it's not human blood. Like, I don't know anything that's happening. You have the wrong guy like that thing. And then immediately after this event happened, he shut up and just was like, boop. The detective says that he swears today that if he had done something different, like maybe put his arm around him, tell him like, you know, it's okay, like we're here for you, that he may have been able to get a confession because he looked like he was going to break, but he just startled the hell out of him. So here's the thing. The Sacramento PD and the, you know, and the district attorneys are like, this isn't going to be hard to prove he did it. Right. What's going to be hard to prove is that he's not crazy. Yeah. He's diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. 
He has multiple recorded, like, going to the ER, making, remember earlier we talked about he thought someone stole his pulmonary artery. Like, Mm -hmm. he's crazy. He's talking about his head, like, his skull bones coming out of his head. Like, there's so many things that it's like, that's going to take a really good lawyering to be like, he's sane. Yeah. And basically what it came down to is they realized that he was bringing gloves, like, rubber gloves to the crime scenes Mm. because he didn't want to get caught by fingerprints because fingerprinting was a big thing back then. Right. Not so much the DNA or anything like that. It was fingerprinting. So if you were truly crazy... You wouldn't think of that. Right. Because in California state law, what determines whether you're sane or not is the ability to understand what's right or wrong. Okay. You know, and as my dad used to say in Sunday school, this is literally what he used to say, is that to be an upstanding citizen... You need to know the difference between right or wrong and choose right. And he knew the difference between right or wrong and he did chose wrong. <laughs> yeah. So essentially they were like, okay. And they were trying to go for like a lesser sentence. Like obviously he's going to spend the rest of his life in, in, in some sort of institution, whether it's prison or a mental institution. Mm-hmm. So they were trying to get at a lower sentence so that he would avoid the death penalty. Mm-hmm. However, th- and that was for second degree murder which just would be the life sentence. But it didn't happen. On May 8th, 1980, the jury found Chase guilty of six counts of first-degree murder and rejecting the argument that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. He was sentenced to die in the gas chamber at San Quentin, but his fellow inmates on death row, again, hate him. <laughs> like, I think there's we've had several cases where people are like, I just don't like you. And they're, you know, death row people. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so they're not the highest caliber of individuals to begin with. And you put them, they all called him Dracula and stuff like that. Now, Chase really helped out in the investigations that, like, we talked about in Mindhunter. Mm-hmm. Because he is the textbook example of a disorganized killer. Yeah. An organized killer is is someone like BTK. Mm-hmm. And... um. <laughs> No, this guy is not an organized killer at all. With the amount of evidence he left behind, with the amount of just like randomness, like the fact that his criteria for killing people is that the door is unlocked, which means he's not planning. It's in the moment. It's like it's the heat of the passion. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that a lot of people talk about is the sociopaths and with the whole like the McDonald triad is that these people don't see other people as human they see them as property and this because like this is why the signs are when you're when they're kids like bedwetting on its own isn't a thing Mm -hmm. so you can't be like my kid is going to be a serial killer because they wet their bed that's not it at all because bedwetting is a sign of stress in children Mm -hmm. when you couple that with arson or you couple that with cruelty to animals it means there's like an internal thing happening with them especially with the cruelty to animals essentially Humans, it's weird. When we're little and children, we don't learn empathy or anything like that or what causes pain. We typically learn that either with other smaller children or small animals. We don't ever learn that like looking up. So because we can understand that we have the ability, like we all have the ability to go out and hurt an animal. We all do. Whether we do it or not is a different situation. Mm -hmm. Everyone has the capability. It's just that there's a lot of people out there with very strong morals who are like, I don't want to hurt animals or I don't want to hurt another human. 
that's why that sign is such a big one. I would say if you have arson and cruelty and no bad betting, you better pay attention really quick because that means there is no internal dialogue that's happening. That kid is just psycho. <laughs> like he's lighting shit and possibly animals on fire and not caring. Yeah. So this is what Robert Ressler really worked. And he spoke to him several he in over like a, a series of interviews. Chase said at one point in time that he was Jewish, which he was not, and that the Nazis were out to get him or that the Italian mafia was out to get him. He also said that there were UFOs out to get him. Everyone was trying to kill him. Hmm. And so he was just forced to keep himself alive. He was just really weird. And then like here's this shows the level of crazy this man really was. I mean, I think he was I think he was of sound mind, but yet not all there. If that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. He handed Robert, like, handed him a handful of macaroni and cheese and said that he'd been keeping in his pocket. And I don't know for how long. And said, I think they're poisoning my food. Can you have this tested? Okay. Right. So, obviously, they had to sedate this man because he was crazy. And who wants the crazy man to, like, bite the other prisoner? And, you know, he, they don't want him drinking other prisoners, essentially. So on December 26, 1980, for morning count, the guard came around, looked in his cell, and saw that Chase wasn't reacting. So he goes into this, like, you know, gets people, goes into the cell, and apparently he's dead. In fact, his exact words were, Dracula's dead. Oh, fuck. The autopsy found that he committed suicide for overdosing on his antidepressants, which he had been hoarding for several weeks. Mm. So it was literally almost a one, it was almost the one year anniversary of his killing spree. So he committed suicide before then because he was going to have to live and remember that. Yeah. Yeah. For a very short period of time, he was in a um, mental institution, but it lasted like less than three months. Oh, okay. So that is the crazy story of Richard Chase. Wow. Who loved to hunt around where I used to work or like where my office used to be, I should say. Wow. Mm hmm. And kind of over where my boss lives. So, oh, fun for her. Right? Mm hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up for today. We hope you enjoyed the vampire episode from 2019. Like we said in the beginning, it's one of our favorites. So we hope you guys love it as much as we do. But with that, we will go ahead and see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.